0: The Urban Broadcast Collective
1: brings together the best podcasts on cities
0: and urban life.
1: Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. This podcast is supported by VPLA, the Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by Peter Jewell, and this is the Planning Exchange Podcast. Good afternoon and welcome to PX66. I'm Jess Noonan and as always I'm joined by my co-host Peter Jewell. Hi, Jess. Today we're speaking with the wonderful Paul Ship, a town planner and urban economist with Urban Enterprise here in Melbourne. I've known Paul for a number of years through our work together on the Planning Institute Committee, organising conferences and more recently through COVID we've been using the very same walking tracks. Paul has over 15 years experience consulting to government and private clients primarily in Melbourne and regional Victoria. As a director of consultancy Urban Enterprise, Paul leads a wide range of strategic planning and urban economic projects and has developed a specialization in development contributions and land supply and demand areas. He's also contributed and managed managed numerous studies across the state in these areas. Welcome to the show Paul.
0: Thank you very much Jess and Peter for having me.
1: Could you tell us a little bit more about Urban Enterprise?
0: Sure. Um, It's a consultancy that's been around for about 30 years now. Um, We're Melbourne-based, but we work across Victoria and Australia. Um, We specialise in planning, economics and tourism. Uh, We work for a whole range of different clients, so local government, state government, developers, other organisations, mainly on on economic and tourism issues, but um, generally in relation to, to planning issues.
2: And Paul, what did you study to, be, to get where you are? Uh, I studied urban planning,
0: uh, Melbourne Uni. Um, that was my first degree. And then I worked as a planner um, for a few years and then went back and did a Master of Commerce uh, mm. again in Melbourne. So bolted on the economics um, to the planning base.
1: Uh, and, and Paul, the term urban economics, it sounds like a lot of jargon. Can you explain to our listeners what is it and why is it more important now than ever?
2: It
0: is. There's a lot of jargon in urban economics itself, um, as there is in planning, but uh, urban economics is basically um, a field of study which applies the principles of economics to urban issues and to urban areas. So um, we look into how urban areas function and how they're developed and particularly demand and supply issues, so demand and supply for for land and um, housing, retail floor space and the like. Uh, But we also look at demographics and and property market characteristics, um, infrastructure funding, um, a whole different range of economic considerations that wrap around planning and and urban areas. Um, And I think, well, your question about why is it important now more than ever? I think there's some pretty major economic and demographic shifts and disruptions that are happening at the moment across the world economy, and certainly um, Australia is not immune to that. And actually understanding what some of those opportunities and challenges mean for individual towns and areas um, is becoming pretty critical. Um, that's not even mentioning COVID, but now in, in the most recent challenge. Um, yeah, very. Very volatile economic conditions exist um, that need to be understood and and responded to locally.
2: And, and Paul, do you think urban economics should inform planning policy to a greater extent? I mean, uh, how much does it at the moment, and where do you see it in, say, 10 years' time?
0: Uh, Well, I've noticed a a pretty big shift over the last few years. Um, Perhaps earlier on in my career, I I think it was often... um, Urban economics was often considered as just one of the elements of planning and one of the, um, I suppose, the inputs to a plan. But there was it was often given equal weighting to other things. Um, but but I've seen it become a lot more front and centre in terms of um, directly informing planning policy in the last couple of years. Um, and I think that's that's pretty important. That that the strategic plans that um, whether they're local or or national um have a very strong economic basis so i can i can see it trending to becoming a bit more front and center but um it'll be interesting to see how it goes over the next few years um, we've just seen the release of the melbourne commercial and industrial land use plan which um, i think for the first time puts a pretty strong policy market down in in melbourne itself um on the importance of, of planning for, for business land so i think there, there are signs that it's becoming um more front and centre for for decision makers and and probably better understood for politicians as well.
1: Paul, in town planning land, urban urban economics is often used to help support rezoning of land um, and development of particular land uses. How does planning and economics interact when considering the balance of population growth, uh, settlement policy, environmental values and tourism objectives?
0: Um, well, it certainly interacts. Um, there's a lot of tension really between um, the urban economics inputs and analyses um, that then inform planning decisions. Um, I'll probably give a couple of examples, I suppose here. Um, I've been working on a, a rural residential study um, in northern Victoria, so in, in a regional context, and um, the locations where everyone wants to build their nice house um, in, a, in a rural area near, near jobs and, and near services in that area um, just happen to be the, the most bushfire prone location. So on the, on the one side you've got an urban economic report that says um, values will be maximised and demand is greatest in a particular location but on the other side you've got the planning policy directing um, minimal or no growth to locate there. So that's, that's one example where um, the market need and the market interest is, is often directly at conflict with planning policy objectives, um, and that's, that's pretty common in, in a range of different locations, and that's, that's pretty natural and pretty well understood, I'm sure, by everyone, but um, there's often um, so much tension involved um, in, in how planning responds to and either blocks or, or is able to facilitate some sort of development that there is a market need for. Um, but in a, in a way that creates net benefit for, for a broader community. So, yeah, the, the tension is, is very real through most of the projects that, that we provide urban economic advice on.
2: We, we love tension on planning exchange. Uh, <laughs> there's always tension between Jess and...
1: Pete. loves <laughs> tension. I don't like tension.
2: <laughs> right. But you, you mentioned net community benefit. Now, that's a very, very subjective um, outcome and description, but mm. also, also with urban economics. One thing different to, say, the production of cars or something like that or widgets, demand and supply in a planning sense is very artificially informed. So the, the demand and supply equation is, is quite different. Any, any comments on that?
0: Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's so much debate still about um, how planning uh strategies and, and policies should balance uh, demand and supply and whether the planning policy should really be um, deliberately restricting supply in certain areas and um and trying to direct demand um i suppose i've had a lot of conversations with with community members and elected representatives over the years um, in my field which um, in many cases i find myself arguing with Um, with people who suggest that um, we we should be able to just shut the door and demand will go elsewhere. Um, And and I find myself a bit frustrated with some of those um, those conversations because really what we're doing is looking at what people are looking for in terms of their housing needs or um, what businesses are looking for in terms of where they want to locate. And demand will accumulate no matter what. Um, supply is available um, if if people want to live in a certain area then values will go up when there's uh, whether there's more supply made available or not so um, yeah i think there's there 's a real tension there between um, what planning seeks to direct and and what the market's looking for in terms of um, in terms of a, a product that they 're willing to to buy and, and get into so um, I think there's probably a bit more opportunity for um, yeah, some, some of the policies to more clearly reflect the fact that there is growth taking place across most parts of, or well, most metropolitan and, and even a lot of peri-urban parts of Australia, um, and that there does really need to be a, a conscious effort to provide more opportunities for growth, um, even in areas where there is good planning policy reasons to limit growth, but Um, Being able to provide opportunities for development where people are interested in being, um, I think, can be even extended a little bit further.
1: Now, Paul, in many tourism spots, a large portion of housing is holiday housing and not used on a permanent basis. This can create ghost towns where the local population, in particular key workers and low-income earners, are not able to live locally due to limited rental stock or inflated rental holiday prices how do we fix this yeah so we
0: um, we do a lot of work in tourism regions um, and for obvious reasons they're often the most attractive places to to live as well um, especially along the coast um, in victoria where we've done a lot of our work Um, we've done some research lately that um, shows that about 50 percent taking the surf coast example um, south coast of Victoria um, about 50% of all visitors to that region um, actually stay in private dwellings so you've got a real conflict between housing stock um, that I suppose at its core is designed for people to live in um, but the housing stock actually um, being almost primarily used for visitation and, and tourism purposes so to use the word tension there's a uh, It's definitely a bit of tension there in terms of the housing market, and it's clearly um, pushing prices way up um, in that part of the world and other tourism areas. Um, How do we fix it? Um, I think there's there's very, or there could be a lot more policy support really for for things like tourism accommodation establishments. Um, Tourism's obviously one of Australia's major export industries, and accommodation um, is chronically undersupplied in a lot of our tourism areas. Um, perhaps over the next 12 months it won't be as much need um, with a lack of international visitation, but certainly as a long-term objective, I think tourism um, accommodation um, is, is a really important uh, opportunity uh, and need for um, economic development as well as making sure that the housing stock is actually available to um, residents and especially key workers and, and low income earners um, that need to work in places like um, holiday destinations and Serve the meals and,
2: and pull the beers. Paul, the should you know the, the, you mentioned the lack of t- tourist accommodation. should that inform planning decisions to a greater extent and to actually encourage you know, the construction of bigger tourist facilities? because I know I know a number have been defeated in, in small coastal yeah. towns, and it seems to be quite perverse. Any thoughts?
1: yeah i mean
0: i think as i just said accommodation is has so many benefits economically um, naturally it needs to be balanced um, between uh, i suppose the the role of an area and the, its capacity and its, its environmental qualities um, and the character of a place there's always a balance to be had um, and i suppose it goes to my earlier point about Having, a, having an objective or a planning objective, a policy objective to facilitate growth and to optimise it, rather than to just put up the shutters and say that um, we don't want any more development here, um, there's certainly economic opportunity to be had by encouraging more accommodation. It doesn't necessarily need to be um, massive resort-style Gold Coast um, accommodation everywhere, um, but uh, yeah, I, I find in my, in my work that a lot of good economic work has been done across um, regions and, and towns that um, doesn't necessarily end up getting much planning policy support. So yes, I think, to directly answer your question, yes, I think more could be done to, to facilitate the right types of, of tourism accommodation.
1: And probably a follow-on to that one, Paul, is how do we plan or or I guess strategically plan for those, particularly those coastal areas, I'm thinking, you know, areas like uh, the Great Ocean Road where they're overrun with tourists for, you know, huge huge parts of the year. How do we plan Mm. for populations when they uh, fluctuate so much between tourism season and um, the off-peak seasons?
2: Mm.
0: Well, it's very difficult to um, to know exactly what population a lot of those areas actually have um, at different times of the year, so there's there's such serious fluctuations that go on uh, and those local governments are often um, not reaping all of the rewards of, of that influx of, of visitation um, and they're not necessarily able to respond with serious infrastructure investment. Um, yeah, look, it's it's a good question. I'm not sure. I, I think the first way to respond to it really is to is to really closely understand um, what is happening and and what are the population fluctuations and, and which areas are experiencing which kinds of growth, um, and yeah, having a bit more of an informed opinion. And we've done a bit of work on population fluctuations for different areas, and and the holiday home factor is is probably the biggest driver of. What is the biggest driver of visitation to a lot of those areas that um, are experiencing challenges? And it's often a bit of a hidden data set. Um, and the more you can understand who's visiting and why and when, um, the easier it is to respond.
1: The data is incredibly hard to get, though, isn't it? You're right. I mean, referring to it as a hidden data set, yeah. it's it's um, it's very difficult. I think when ABS data is only released every couple of years um it's all those those years in between that we really need to understand
0: Mm. oh absolutely we've done a lot of primary research in that field and and we often find that our visitation estimates far exceed any any official visitation estimates or census or, or what census information can actually offer um so yeah i suppose um not necessarily trusting official estimates is our motto and and we go and try and dig into what's actually happening on the ground and and for example if you look at the census you'll find that in the surf coast I think it's something like um, 25 percent of the dwellings are rented but then when you dig into it and you look at the rental bonds that are active in some of those towns um, you find that almost all of those um, rented dwellings um, don't actually have a a bond that, that is attached to it so it's not it's not a permanent rental; it's a holiday rental. So there's a whole bunch of issues that need to be unpacked before you can really understand how those how those areas are affected.
2: Paul, you're a you're a welcome guest on Planning Exchange because uh, we don't uh, trust official statistics much, Jester, <laughs> but the, <laughs> with the with the ABS, but the, the, you know the ABS and those sort of things, Paul, as you as you're sort of alluding to, is really backward rear view mirror looking, and they don't capture the data. I would have thought with all the marvellous technology we've got now, you know, even phone data can tell you who's, you know, not who is in the area, but how many people and things like that. And there's lots of, you know, Google searches and the data can be gained lots and lots of different ways to give you a very accurate picture of what's going on. How, how do you how do you respond to that?
0: Yeah, I completely agree. Um, so most of our studies, we would generally try and corroborate information so yep official data sources provide a starting point but we then go a bit deeper Um, i suppose one example i can think of is um we were lucky enough to access i think it was anonymously access and confidentially access um road toll information for one of our projects Um, and that it was a project about tourism visitation and we were able to then work out uh, which roads Uh, visitors were using to access a tourism region and and when and and where they were coming from and it and it just opened up um, a whole data set that that we'd never seen before and it and it gave us some really rich information and and it was just a matter of of looking for it and trying to establish a partnership with someone who holds data and use it for for planning purposes
2: Um, and paul do you think this sort of uh, you know the the Road traffic is one thing, and uh, the rental information you saw, but in, in a whole other array of planning uh, issues and contested matters, the use of data to get more accurate um, summation of what is actually going on. Can you give some other examples as well?
0: Yeah. Um, oh, there's, there's so many so many public data sets now available that were never available before. Um, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of them will be very familiar to your listeners, but um, for example, there's a lot more um, census of land use information available now that, that governments and local governments are making public um, about how many restaurant seats there are and um, any any which way of, of sort of analysing land use. Um, you can use GIS to have a better understanding of building footprints and heights and all sorts of... Um, urban design applications, um, I mean, we use things like Airbnb data um, to um, analyze um, tourism accommodation and and the issue that I was discussing before about use of private dwellings. Um, there's a there's a huge amount of data out there that was never really public or or even available until probably about five years ago or so. so. Yeah, there's no shortage of data. I suppose the challenge is making sure that it's it has some integrity and, and can be understood and can be interpreted as relevant to a planning issue.
1: How would you say uh, the change in data, or, or perhaps it's the availability of data and the range of it, how has it affected your day-to-day work? Um,
0: well, it, it's given us... I suppose it's given us more that we could work with, but it is—it can be difficult to filter um, data now because of. I suppose it's a bit like journalism. There's every man and his dog is is an expert, um, and so there's a there's a whole myriad of data that we could possibly use, but it's we find that we're needing to very much interrogate the, the quality of the data um, a bit more now. When you're using official data sets, um, you can be confident a bit more confident in the in the quality of the data, whether it's um, exactly relevant or, or perfect, that's that's another matter. But I suppose we need to do a bit more interrogation of data sets. Um, and I suppose there's a bit of a tendency at the moment. You can get lazy and and just try and use the huge amount of desktop information that you can access to to analyze a an issue. Um, but absolutely nothing can ever replace the quality and the richness of of information you can gather from talking directly to individuals and businesses. So um, I suppose we're spending a lot of time interrogating data but then really testing it by talking to the people who, who are on the ground and especially the businesses who know how an area is performing.
1: Thank you to Song Bowden planners who offer excellent personalised service. Call Dave Song or Dan Bowden through details on our website.
2: Also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website.
1: This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. Paul, well,
2: residential areas um, provide far greater opportunity for businesses than is currently being realised. Um, can you talk to that? But And also I want to talk talk to you about my dislike of high-tech te- high business hubs after that um everyone seems to want one and to me it's um anyway maybe the first one (laughs) residential areas and business opportunities sure
0: um yeah i mean melbourne is a is a massive massive place and i know i'm being very melbourne centric i do a lot of my work in melbourne um you know urban areas in australia in general are, are very very land extensive um and we have a huge amount of of property and space and built uh, environment that we can use for um, i think more purposes than we currently are Um, i suppose the challenge that i i see uh, in a lot of my work is that um, employment areas in established parts of a a, usually a metropolitan area um, are usually fairly finite and often at their capacity already, Um, so you'll find that um, a lot of land is being taken up in activity centres or around activity centres um, for residential purposes, and there's not a a huge amount of uh, land that's available for businesses, especially small businesses, Um, so yeah, I think think our residential areas could perform a greater role in in accommodating very small businesses and and micro-businesses um, if there's the right policy support to to manage that, um, especially in areas that are proximate to public transport, um, and yeah, the, the impacts can be can be managed. I, I think there's a massive opportunity there.
1: Do you think, Paul, that we need to be reviewing our zoning provisions at a state level more um, regularly to keep up with these ever-changing markets?
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think um, I think that's a problem for any planning policy, isn't it? That. Um, it's, it's, it takes so long and with good reason mm-hmm. that the changes to policy need to be well justified and, and well consulted on. Um, but I think particularly in terms of planning for businesses, you know, business businesses need and probably the COVID experience has shown this more than ever, that businesses need to be able to adapt very quickly to, to opportunities and capitalise on first mover advantages and the like um, so that okay. they can they can establish and they can pivot into other industries and I think that there's probably the need to um, have a look at our employment zones again so that there's as much flexibility as possible for, for most businesses to just establish um, and get started without um, too much planning complexity about it. I mean, naturally there needs to be good um, policy in place and good controls in place to mitigate any, any impacts.
1: it needs to be flexible enough and and nimble enough perhaps to accommodate all those micro economies that we're starting to see particularly through COVID. i think
0: Mm. oh exactly and Mm. that that goes back to my point about residential areas could do some of the some of the lifting um, definitely broadening out the the uses that or the business types that could be um accommodated without a permit um there's a whole range of ways you could do it but i suppose the the current zones that I'm familiar with in Victoria are, are very much a commercial zone and an industrial zone and variations. And yes, you can have different types of businesses within each of those zones, but um, the way businesses work, they're, they're far less rigid. Um, you have a, a coffee roaster um, who wants to have a, a little coffee shop at the at the front and that's a retail element. And then there's a uh, I suppose, a manufacturing element and there's a real blurred line now between a lot of um, businesses and how they wish to operate and they can't be very easily categorised into our planning system.
2: Mm. Well, and talking talking about high technology hubs, uh, everyone seems to be uh, after these things. Mm. Maybe it's just a matter of doing the right thing in terms of the zoning structure and then leaving it up to businesses to. To, to go for it rather than try and pick winners and 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 designate certain things that really don't need those spaces. Maybe it's more hype than reality. Mm. Yeah,
0: I, I'd agree with that point, Peter. Um, I, mean, I, I do quite a few projects on industrial uh, land demand and supply assessments and the like, and just general employment planning and I think the I think the hype that you mentioned is real. That that a lot of um, towns and areas and governments would love to have a high tech hub um, in whatever form that uh, that might take for them. Um, but not every not every area has a specialisation or a competitive advantage to be able to attract those kind of businesses. So, um, in my view, any business is good business, especially if it's well suited to the advantages of of that particular area. And uh, there, are, there are heaps of examples of communities that I suppose are strongly objecting to things like employment um, areas that are proposed or an industrial area that's proposed because they'd, uh, the government or, or the community would prefer either no employment land or attractive high tech jobs um, when really all, all that's needed is local employment opportunities and, and often often small-scale industrial precincts are, are what's needed. And it might not always be pretty, but um, that's the way to, uh, from the bottom up to make sure that there are business opportunities and employment opportunities rather than trying to attract a big fish or trying to come up with a, a business park or a high-tech hub that, that may or may not be suited to it, an area.
2: Paul, I think it was Lennon who said, you know, for decades nothing changes and then in a day decades happen overnight. Um, Maybe this COVID disaster is going to get rid of some of the magic thinking that we've had in the past about wishing for this and having high expectations. And just mm. rather than that, because we we're in a di- such dire economic conditions, maybe it's just back to basic knitting. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I think I'm. I think I'm sort of experiencing that at the moment. That um, things have been so good for so long that um it is easy to get complacent with planning and and projections and things like that and and not necessarily worry about uh, making sure that there are jobs for everyone um but uh, yeah i definitely agree with your with your comments there um as i said before any job's a good job um so long as uh, yeah you can at at a planning policy level make sure that um, it's not impacting negatively on on any other part of the planning system um, yeah, it, it's fascinating to watch how, how the COVID impacts are already playing out and how people are responding.
1: And just moving on to your favourite topic, Paul, um, infrastructure contributions. We wanted to talk to you about public open space and interested in your views on whether or not there is a shortage in terms of our ability to provide quality neighbourhoods currently. Um, why is it so difficult for infill sites to deliver public open space? Should developers be given the option of land versus cash, and what about the um, upcoming infrastructure contributions?
0: Yeah, it is my um, my favourite topic, I suppose, Jess. Um, uh, not, not it's many not vac- many
1: people's favourite topic, <laughs> so I'm glad someone's across it.
0: <laughs> yeah, look, it's often um, it's often the the first topic that a planner will run a million miles away from as quickly as they can as soon as they see a DCP or a spreadsheet with all infrastructure costs and contributions in it. Um, yeah it's a very complex issue so public open space contributions and development contributions um, are, are so hotly contested and and rightly so um, developers are, are making it often a financial contribution that needs to be needs to be fair um, and needs to be um, Uh, providing better infrastructure for the the people that are being accommodated in their developments but um, I suppose there's um, there are issues at the moment in terms of open space so the open space network and not just open space but using that as an example the open space networks were often established many years ago
1: um,
0: to a great extent and the density increases that have been occurring in metropolitan areas and established areas have been so significant that um, existing open spaces are under severe pressure in a lot of areas um, and it's difficult often uh, to for developments to provide land as part of their um, their their medium to high density developments because land is so valuable um, and there is a lot of policy direction to encourage that sort of high density development and you don't necessarily want to have half of a development taken up with open space um, for a number of reasons so being able to use open space contributions to improve existing open spaces is really critical Um, but i think there's a bit of a probably a bit of a policy gap or at least a lack of direction from from the victorian state government in my experience and uh, possibly in other jurisdictions as well where there's not really a consistent approach so you'll find some developers paying a contribution of say two percent in one part of um, a city and then Eight um, percent in another part of the city. So there's there's a there's a real inconsistency in terms of how um, how contributions are made and how they're collected across all types of infrastructure, um, and it, it's a bit of a mess. And um, I think uh, there, there needs to be a lot more thought and a lot more progress made on on funding. It's often the very last thing that people think about in a plan, um, yet it's so critical to making sure that infrastructure is available to everyone, um, and that there's a, an equitable approach across uh, across areas.
2: Paul, well, just uh, changing the subject to activity centres, there's a, a big push um, to have high-density residential in those centres. Now, that's causing some issues, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, it's a really tough one, activity centres,
0: because it, there are such great... Planning principles that that underpin the activity centre policy that that is is a central part of uh, of of planning policy for for cities across Australia and, and certainly in in Melbourne where it's uh, it's very well entrenched. Um, I suppose I suppose the the things that I've observed are that um, the really strong focus of a lot of development on. Delivering residential inactivity centres and a strong policy support for good reason for residential to locate within activity centres. Um, it's often leading to, uh, I suppose, a, a lack of growth in, in floor space for commercial purposes and, and there's been a number of attempts across Melbourne recently to um, I suppose mandate a minimum commercial floor space, for example, in an activity centre or a minimum number of levels and and those those battles have really been hard fought. Um, I, I think policy really could think or, or could be adapted even further so that uh, we think carefully about asking activity centres to do all the heavy lifting in terms of residential development, um, looking at some of the, the areas around activity centres. I know a lot of uh, areas already do this, but um, making sure that all parts of the city does does its share of heavy lifting in terms of accommodating residential and that within activity centres themselves, um, that space is really available for employment purposes and, and commercial uses, which really are the the bread and butter of activity centres rather than
2: just a, an apartment zone. Well, with, with that spreading the load of residential one One thing is that the city could be divided up into sort of hexagonal grids, much like a some sort of war plan, and different areas could be given different attributes and some of those attributes might be uh, very conducive to residential even though it's remote from an activity center and planning policy could be much more adaptive uh, any any merit in that sort of approach do you think um
0: here we are going do a very sort of philosophical planning direction.
2: That's the exchange. Paul, Welcome
1: you've... to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Peter Jewell.
2: <laughs> yes, Nina, you are so rude. Come <laughs> on, this is a te- there's no <laughs> I in team. Come on, what are you doing? <laughs> I feel like I'm, uh, I'm going back to the origins of,
0: of urban planning and the history of it here. Um, no, I think it's a good point. I mean, my comment before about any job's a good job. Um, it's, it's not as simple as any house is a good house. Um, but in in an environment where you're experiencing a lot of demand for housing and a lot of a lot of price challenges, um, being able to accommodate enough dwellings across growth areas, established areas, activity centres, and sometimes in areas that aren't perfectly aligned with planning with current planning policy to direct growth to activity centres and, and public transport, I th- I think that's th- there's merit to that.
2: You're going to be welcome back, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't going to disagree
0: with you, but I I haven't really had the chance to study the principles
2: of your proposal, Peter. Paul, we love tension. And, you know, there's a lot to be said, you know, categorising things as insiders and outsiders. Planning policy can change, even just because something's been in place for 40 years. And you've got to look at how successful that's been, you know, in real terms. Um, And one thing about the activity centre policy that, yeah. okay, we've got lots of new residential towers in some of the activity centres, but the sprawl just keeps going out and out and out and out. And the proportion of people, you know, living in that sort of housing is pretty much the same. So uh, I just think you need to, if something's not working, you look at it, you know, and um, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Any thoughts? Mm,
0: no, I, I agree. Um, I mean, I'm often asked to comment on, uh the what, what what the appropriate balance should be between growth areas and apartments for example or you know shouldn't we be shouldn't we be drawing a line a permanent growth boundary let's say around a, a metropolitan area and, and and focusing all development um on infill and, and apartments but in reality the market is looking for for all sorts of different housing op- options you know, it's such a diverse property market usually across a metropolitan area um and we really need to be firing on all cylinders to make sure that there are that diversity is retained um and that and that different housing types are available to different people Um, if you can achieve that for your current policy then great but i i I think um i agree with where i think your question's heading is which is that uh there probably needs to be um a, a broader target around those established areas and doing some of the heavy lifting as well as just um, polarising the growth areas and the, and the apartments in the activity centres.
1: And, Paul, what about the rural populations or rural areas? Um, I know you do a lot of work in this area as well. Um, obviously, these sort of geographic areas are critical to our country's production and supply chains, yet many of them are losing their populations um, or their labour force. How do we fix this?
0: Yeah, it's, um, it's a pretty big issue for a lot of councils at the moment um, that I've worked with. Um, rural areas, I, I mean, it's a global, it's really a, um, a global issue that um, population is centralising and um, uh, heading uh, urbanising um, at a fairly rapid rate, and it has been for some time. But I suppose what, what some areas of Australia are experiencing is, is population decline in areas that have high-value resources and have an existing supply chain and an existing uh, business base that really is desperate for labour and especially in in Australia, which exports so much um, food and fibre, that that really there is a lot of value to be had and and a lot of economic opportunity if we can encourage or or find ways to... Stop some of that population loss, or or just attract people to rural areas. Um, I mean, we've found that um, there are there are opportunities to directly connect businesses that that have jobs available to um, to people looking for work in, in metropolitan areas, for example. Um, but also that, that it's very difficult to achieve any meaningful change without without government policy to really encourage. Um, People to head to rural areas either temporarily or for for an extended period of time um, and I think from a, from a planning perspective we've we've found that a lot of towns um, that are struggling for population um, there's a bit of a threshold um, for po- for that population level that seems to be sustainable or, or able to 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 maintain and grow population and it's around the six thousand resident mark um, it's not to say that if you have less than six thousand Residents, you're going to lose population if you have more. You're going to grow, but we've found that that's that's a bit of a population indicator. That um, if population is declining any any less than that, um, there is a risk of, of losing some of the services and some of the retail um, players that that might have been established in those towns for a long time. So, um, yeah, supporting those rural centres um, is really going to be critical to make sure that those some of those rural Areas don't actually collapse in terms of their their population base.
2: Paul, the the COVID factor. And we talked about planning. You uh, talked about public policy, government policy. W- what are your predictions of the impact on this will have on society? And that's a huge question. Now, <laughs> now, Jess and I don't agree about this, but I think you know the government's reactions been the biggest public policy failure in the history of the country, uh, in terms of what it's done to business and everything else. But what do you what do you think it means for the retail sector? What impacts lower immigration are going to have on the commercial space and, and other aspects? Big big mm. topics, but you've got two minutes. <laughs>
0: Massive topic. Um, I mean, I think we're all still finding out um, what, what impacts might actually um, come to fruition, um, and and every day we're observing something different. Um, I think from my perspective, it's really shown a bit of a um, a forward look at what a current trend might lead to. So, I mean, you've already got the, on, the trend of online retail that's been having a significant effect on, on existing bricks and mortar. Um, when sales have doubled in retail, online retail over the last four years alone, and now you've got everyone logging on to um, get their groceries delivered or, or whatever it might be. Um, so I think COVID's basically been accelerating some of those trends that are already occurring um, but I, I suppose I've observed and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this but I've observed um, a bit of a pushback as well so a lot of people have been pretty sick to death of teleconferencing and um, the, the, the idea that everyone will be working from home because um, you can I, I don't think um, stands up in my mind I, I think people are pushing back and saying hey we we really um, gain benefit from personal interaction and collaboration um, and 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 acting and and spending money locally as well and interacting within their local community so I, I think although there'll be some trends that that stick like the online retail there'll be some others that that push back um, yeah that, that that I suppose lend support to to traditional ideas around local centers um, and and physical collaboration in workplaces and, and all of those so I, I, I don't think we should be too uh, quick to suggest that the world is going to change fundamentally just because of this, this look that we're getting into the
2: future. And what about in the reduced immigration?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's going to be interesting because um, depending on how long borders stay closed, um, I mean, immigration in Australia makes up a, a huge percent of the population growth. Um It's definitely, I think it's about 60% um, of our population is net overseas migration. Um, So in terms of housing demands, I've got no doubt that in the short term it will weaken um, the the total housing demand um, in Australia. Um, And I suppose the the other sectors that rely on on the immigration, so the education sector and and the tourism sector. will be affected pretty significantly as well so it will be it will be very interesting to see what um, what housing what, what sort of aggregate housing demand impacts there are going to be yeah.
2: and and Paul we've been fortunate in australia for a long time we we've had relatively low unemployment rates but other countries like say france has got a permanent un- unemployment rate of like 10 11 12% uh, they just mm. can't shake it for various reasons My, what impact would 10% unemployed have if, if a lot of those jobs aren't, aren't you know rebooted mm. well i mean I, th- I think what people are observing
0: um i think what everyone is getting a look at um throughout the community at the moment is the the fragility of um of economic impacts um and when uh when there's a positive economic impact it flows through the supply chain and and throughout a local economy and a regional economy, but when there's when you pull someone's wage out from underneath them, um, you then see the negative version of that, and you see the economic impact throughout a community um, that, that can be quite substantial so yeah i mean I, I think I think any increase in unemployment is going to cause those domino effects, um, and it could be quite challenging for an economy that's already been hit by bushfires in in parts of the country. Um, and a government that's really spent every dollar they they could possibly access now on on this recovery. Um, I think if if there's if there's longer term unemployment to deal with as well, which there which there very well might be, um, it yeah it could be it could take quite a while to um, really emerge from. And uh, Paul,
2: in terms of this is podcast extra now. Um, what have you been reading, listening to, or watching lately that you think our listeners might be interested in? Well, you you
0: gave me this question in advance, so I'm not doing it off the cuff. But um, I, I actually don't. I must admit, I don't do a lot of reading or listening to. Um, sort of technical planning issues or things like that. I tune into planning
2: exchange. No, no, no. It could be. It can be much broader. It's not just that. <laughs> it Doesn't have to
1: be planning related. <laughs>
0: oh, good. Okay. In that case, I'm going to talk about sports documentaries. Um, I've, I've loved. I'm, I'm big into sports, but um, I, in this period of having no access to live sport, um, sports docos have been proliferating, and uh, so I've really enjoyed. Um, Sunderland Till I Die, which is a, a doco about um, Sunderland Football Club and, and the behind the scenes, inner workings of a, of a very interesting um, business, being a football club in a, in a very passionate part of the world about football. So that's one that I've loved. And there's a bunch of other sports docos that I've really enjoyed as well lately. So that's, that's where I turn my attention when I'm sick of talking about planning and economics.
2: Hmm. How, how about you, Jess?
1: Well, we've had a bit of a baby boom within our sort of broader friendship group. So every now and then you may have heard me recommend um, some sewing or some quilting and um, I'm getting back into that again at the moment. So it's been good fun and nice and relaxing and also a very good thing to do um, during this unusual period.
2: What about you, Pete? Well, Jess, I, I'm so sick of uh, fake statistics and, and and fake scare stories at the moment. I thought I might look <laughs> up. I, I'm just over it. But people, uh, anyway, I can't believe it. It's like 1984, all sorts of bad things. It's dystopia we live in at the moment. I just cannot believe so many things. I mean, this has been like living through history these last few months. And a number of books that I read earlier on, you know, like 1984, Lots of those things sort of come true. Um I heard Is
1: 1984 a book.
2: Oh yes, please don't <laughs> say that. George Orwell. And and you know, in that in that book he had the Ministry of Truth. And I saw a government campaign slogan the other day. It was something like, Staying apart keeps us together. And that could have come straight out of the pages of 1984 like from the Ministry of Truth. But anyway, what I've been looking up is the causes of death in Australia. And I think this would be a great podcast, Jess, down the track. Did you know uh, something like 160,000 people died in Australia last year, Jess?
1: No, I didn't.
2: And 16,500 of those were from lung-related illnesses. Paul, are are you still there?
0: I'm, I'm listening intently. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and the major cause of death for males is heart attack, and the major cause for death for females is dementia. But it, these figures are put out by uh, the ABS, so I'm not going to bag them all the time. But the the change in the death rates it has been extraordinary over the years, and the reasons for those changes. So, Jess, you're into begin to public health, so I think we should do a podcast on this topic. So. Um, like every day, right. so every week in a s- Victoria, seven hundred people die. Amazing. Anyway, so-
1: <laughs> we'll try and find a guest for that one. Anyone <laughs> well, listening who wants to talk about that, get in touch. <laughs> it Sounds
2: pretty dark. You it does dark sound dark very dark. <laughs> no, 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 Paul. It's not. It's not meant to be dark. It's meant to be illuminating because, and meant to be brightness because we are so scared of death and. You know, the insurance industry deals with death all the time and and factors in, you know, what's the the probability of this? What's the probability of that? Are you
1: going to start talking about um, the death calculator thing that you use as well?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the death calculator, Paul, is that if you plug in, you know, you answer certain questions, the, the insurance company will come back and say you will live to the age of seventy four eighty six and some of the yes. questions they ask you are like, "Have you had a speeding ticket in the last twelve months so it 's not just health related it 's also it seems to pick up your attitudes to things
0: It sounds a lot like there 's uh, some econometrics involved there. Peter. <laughs> you just plug in a bunch of variables and it 'll give you an answer but uh yeah it's uh it sounds like a bit of a stretch
2: though no 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 it's not believe in the future it's your friend paul paul you've been fantastic <laughs> a great guest Jess. good suggestion um i think we should have paul back down the track and um listeners thanks for spending time with us in your busy lives and uh we would recommend the urban broadcast collective which we're part of um great lot of podcasts there so Thanks so much, Jess, and and thanks, Paul. You've been a super guest. Pleasure.
1: Thanks, Paul. Great to be
2: involved. Thanks for having me.